moments when I can take a, a familiar topic that I'm aware of and maybe look at it from a different perspective, try to understand it in a different angle. You kind of see this when you, when you take a flight on a plane. You, you're familiar with the area that you live in, you know the roads, you understand it, but then you go up to five or 10,000 feet and you see the same roads, but you see it from a different perspective. You have a different angle on it. It looks a little different. It gives you more of a comprehensive view to things. And uh, that's what I want to do with the parable of the sower. Uh, most of you are familiar with this parable. You, you know it's the sower goes out and sows the seed, and some falls on the path, some falls among the thorns and the rocks, and some falls on the good soil, and, and it grows up and produces a fruit. You've heard that story, and you understand it a certain way. I want to try to take a look at it maybe a little differently, um, because it's part of a bigger sermon that Jesus is teaching. You know, Jesus had two sermons so far. The first sermon is the Sermon on the Mountain, chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is the second extended sermon. And it's really, the first one was Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of a sermon on the sea, right? Because Jesus, after facing opposition, we're going to see that he goes down by the lake. Great crowds follow him. He can't talk to all of them until he gets in a boat, sitting on the water, and then preaching to the people. And this is a sermon that's really all parables. There's seven parables in this chapter. We'll have five sermons on them. Consider a few of them uh, as a couplet. But, but there's going to be um, these sermons on the nature of the kingdom, how we enter the kingdom, how the kingdom grows, what opposition faces the kingdom, and how the kingdom's going to be consummated, and the value of the kingdom. So all these things we'll be speaking about. Today, though, I, I want to kind of draw your mind to this parable, and I want you to think about a few things. First off, the kingdom's going to come in a very unexpected way. This is really going to be important. It's going to come in an unexpected way. It's going to come in a way that you, don't, you won't naturally or intuitively figure out. Secondly, though it will be unexpected, the kingdom will come with an absolute certainty, an absolute certainty. And then he's going to speak thirdly on how we enter this kingdom and flourish and thrive in it. Flourish and thrive. So we're going to take a look first at the unexpected nature. If you turn with me to Matthew 13, I'm going to read the whole thing, 23 verses. It's a long section of scripture. So please open your scriptures and follow uh, with me. It says, The same day Jesus went out to the house, <clears throat> went out of the house, and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into the boat and sat down, and a whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull in their eyes, and with their eyes they can barely hear. Excuse me. That's why the problem. I just figured it out. <laughs> Trying to hear with their eyes. With their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear, then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So, that's, that's, a, that's a big chunk of Scripture. Now, I, I'm excited about it because I, I profited greatly as, as I've thought through it this week. I, I trust you will. What struck me first, though, was the unexpected nature of the kingdom. Now, it's not obvious when you look at the text. The kingdom comes in very, very unexpected ways. Let me explain. Look at the first verse. It says, on that same day, that same day. You know, Matthew is reminding us these events happened with the events that Ray preached about in chapter 12. All that opposition that Jesus had been facing, it's occurring on the same day. In other words, the opposition that came to Jesus, if you remember, was over his preaching and over his ministry. And, uh, and this opposition came from John the Baptist in a way. He was confused, befuddled over this message. He didn't run after. He didn't see Jesus as Jesus was declaring himself to be. You see the crowds, they were both ambivalent and disbelieving when Jesus was preaching. So remember back in chapters 10, 11, and 12, you see the Pharisees, they were not just antagonistic, they were filled with hatred, they wanted to destroy him. And so I'm sure the disciples had to be thinking, what is going on? And they had to be befuddled. I mean, they were kind of like, the Messiah has come and everybody's opposing them. I mean, Why would the one sent by God face such opposition? He's done so many miracles. Remember those 10 miracles in chapters 8 and 9? All the great teaching in chapters 5, 6, and 7? And everybody's turning against them. So, I mean, it had to leave them what is going on. And so Jesus turns to a parable to explain this unexpected kingdom. You have it wrong, basically, he's saying. He's saying... A farmer or a sower went out to sow. That's how he describes the coming of the kingdom. A sower sowing seed. Now, you know the disciples had to be thinking, this is crazy. Are you saying the kingdom is like a seed? A vulnerable, small, insignificant seed that can be eaten by birds and can be strangled by thorns and can be withered by the sun? Is that the kind of kingdom you're bringing? 
I mean, is, the, is God of this kingdom a sower just casting it out without precision? It's falling here, it's falling there, much of it not fruitful at all. Are you saying that this new world God is bringing is, is like seed that doesn't bear fruit, really? So you can imagine the questioning of the disciples. I want to remind you that if you and I were there and we were like them, we would have expected something different. For Jesus to say the kingdom of God is coming, in their minds, they would have been thinking, oh, a Messiah is going to come, a warrior Messiah, a new David. He's going to bring the armies, we're going to push Rome right into the sea, like Patton and his third army. We're just going to drive right on through Europe to Germany. That's the kind of warrior he's going to be. And, and, and when he comes, it's going to be with earthquakes and with thunder and with lightning, and, and the trees are going to sing for joy, and the rivers are going to clap, because that's what the Old Testament was saying. All these things are going to happen. And when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a revival. Mass conversions, following the Messiah, going with him to Jerusalem to worship. So that's what they're expecting. And yet God's kingdom didn't come that way. It didn't come that way. It came with a humble king. He's gentle. A a smoldering wick he doesn't extinguish. A bruised reed he doesn't break. He, he goes to the women, he goes to the children, he goes to the sick, and the tax collectors are coming to the kingdom and not even the religious. I mean, they had to be scratching their heads. And this is a whole different type of kingdom. That's why Jesus says, if you have ears, let them hear. You want to pay attention. It's coming in a very unexpected way. And they haven't even seen the big nature, or the, the nature of the big shocker coming up when the Messiah has to die on a cross, when exaltation will only come after humiliation. Who would have imagined the one sent by God, the most glorious one, coming and sacrificing himself for us? Had to be a better way. I mean, clearly, God, you don't have to do it this way. So there's this massive shift and change. The kingdom's going to come in a very unexpected way. Now, why do I say this? Well, I think it's essential for your faith, for the Christian here, this is essential to understand. If you're going to be prepared, in other words, I think many of us succumb to this idea that when you become a Christian, it's this triumphal thing. You know, you know we kind of succumb to the triumphalism of the faith that when I come to faith in Christ, things should begin to clear up for me. They ought to be getting better. Life ought to be going a little smoother. Marriages ought to be a little bit better. And we think of this incremental growth without any setbacks. And, and we get discouraged when we have them. You know, so think about your personal life. You know, when you come to faith in Christ, we think, well, great, now I'm God's child. His power is now for me. So I shouldn't have the same struggles personally, physically, maybe maritally. Maybe with my children. Those things should kind of be eliminated. They should begin to evaporate because he's on my side and and he's going to do all things right by me. And so we think of this natural working upward towards glory in this life. Or think spiritually. You know, we think, well, I believe in Jesus and I've trusted him, but I'm still having problems loving my wife. I'm still struggling with with raising my children. I I, I don't have an immediate love for the word. I'm still struggling with this thing called sanctification. I'm still troubled over sin and lust. Or you look at the culture, you know, you think, well, so many people in America are Christians, therefore the culture should be getting better, right? 
I mean, it should be working in an upward fashion. This place should be becoming more like heaven. Or we think globally. We look at ISIS and the terror that is reigning, knocking out all the churches in Mosul. And we think, come on, God, where's your kingdom? Where's your power? And all of a sudden, we Christians begin to panic a bit. Why? Because I don't think we fully understand the nature of God's kingdom in a very broken world and how it grows. Now we look and we become kind of nervous and we think we're defeated and God's abandoning us. And yet Jesus had said, he had said these words in Luke 17. He said, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It comes in very hidden, non-dramatic ways. And folks, if we're not prepared for this, what happens is we get very shaky and we actually become uneasy in the faith. I remember when Carol and I went overseas to Austria, we were a bit naive, and that's probably a significant understatement. We thought, hey, we're going over to Austria to work with these refugees. The, the wall had just come down, it was in 89, and we thought, we're going over, the Austrians will welcome us as we seek to help these people in their land, and the refugees are going to be there, and we're going to come alongside and try to encourage them and share with them the faith that they weren't allowed to hear about behind the Iron Curtain, and, and we'll gravitate and learn the language and, and live within the culture. No way. It was a disaster. It was like getting off a train at 60. You know, it takes you a while to stop bouncing around before you figure what ends up. And we didn't have a clue. We were overwhelmed with the Austrians didn't like us. The refugees, we couldn't hardly communicate with them. The culture was extremely difficult. The language, we never really got down. So there was a tremendous amount of improper expectations about the nature of God's ministry in a very broken world. And I think we need to know that I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful to be made aware that in this world we will have trouble. I can take good courage because he's overcome the world, but in the working out of God's kingdom, it's going to be a lot of fits and starts. This idea of triumphalism within faith, it's not supported in church history. There is no period in church history that didn't have setbacks and pushbacks and struggles. And I would say, too, if you're not a Christian here, and you've often been hesitant to consider the reality of Christianity, because of the trouble and the evil in the world, hello, it's saying that. It's making that clear and plain. So if that's the reason that you rejected Christianity, uh, the, the scriptures speak clearly that that will be part and parcel of how the kingdom grows. So that's the first thing, that we don't want to, be, we don't want to fail to recognize that the kingdom is going to come in an unexpected way. But for no, I don't want you as a Christian here for a myth to think it's uncertain. I don't want you to think the kingdom's going off rail or anything. I don't want you to think about that the kingdom's on some precarious ledge, uncertain as to its future fulfillment. Please don't think that way. Because look with me at verses 10 to 17. These are significant words. Let me just read a few of them again because they really speak boldly. He says, then the disciples, remember the disciples were confused. They come up to him and say, why are you speaking in parables? And he said to them, he's trying to shore up their faith. He says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. Wow. 
Jesus has shifted his preaching style to parabolic form. He's using parables. Why? Because he's going to conceal some things now. The kingdom is firmly in the grasp of our Lord, the sower. And he's saying, I'm going to now begin to obscure some things, and I'm going to begin to reveal some things. This is very sobering. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it is not. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying, because he's the king of this kingdom, I'm now shutting down the light for them to hear. In other words, those people who had seen the acts of Christ, who had heard him speak, and who continued to refuse to believe, he says, I'm drawing the curtain closed. I'm now going to speak in parables so that they don't understand. And we know this is the understanding, because look, he looks at Isaiah in chapter 6. And he says this, this is why I speak to them in parables. Seeing they don't see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He says, Isaiah is being fulfilled. And he says this to them, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This is what theologians call a a, a judicial, um, yeah, drawing out justice upon the people. In other words, he's bringing judgment upon the people now because they have refused to hear. This is what I think he means in verse 12 in this proverb. He says, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, Jesus is saying that at one point, these people had refused to believe, and now the light of the gospel is going to be withdrawn. And that's why he says, if you have ears, you better listen. This is a frightening thought. This is, this is a damning word, is what it is. I mean, it's significant. I mean, each of you have ears. Are you listening? In other words, he's saying there's a point here where the gospel will keep going out to you, and at one point in your refusal to believe he will begin to draw the light away from you. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians. See, the gospel divides. Do you realize that? The gospel will divide before it unites. It divides the one who believes from the one who does not. There is no third group. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, who through us spreads the fragrance and knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's talking about his preaching. He's spreading the fragrance of the gospel through his preaching. He says, for for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul's overwhelmed that his preaching is leading people, some from life to life, or he's going to say in chapter 3, from glory to glory, to others, he's going to lead them from death to death. That's what the gospel does. I'm thankful, though, that Jesus says here, as he quotes in verse 15, he says this, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, I'm saying to the person here who has refused to believe the gospel, 
You've heard the gospel, and you've heard the gospel, and you have refused to believe it. There is yet time to turn your eyes, turn your mind, turn in faith and repentance, and he can yet heal you. But, but do you see what Jesus is doing here? Though the kingdom is coming in an unexpected way, it's coming with a certainty. And it's bringing about a closing of the door to those who refuse to believe. But look to those who are blessed. In other words, that's a dark picture. But look at the brightness of what he says. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. In other words, the secrets of the kingdom, when we see that expression, the secrets of the kingdom, there isn't some secret like a kingdom's coming. They all knew that. The secrets of the kingdom is that the kingdom is going to come in Christ, in this, in this human being who is going to bear sin and suffer and die for our sins. That's the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom is in very non-obtrusive ways, very hidden. It's going to come through the humiliation of Christ. That's what was hidden. That's the secret. The secret is it's not going to come in this triumphant way, but in a very non-obtrusive way. Now, if you're a Christian here, and your eyes have been opened to the kingdom, you understand this, you believe in Christ, then you of all people are to rejoice greatly. And what I'm saying is this, if you believe that Jesus Christ is truly the one who has brought the kingdom in such non-obtrusive ways, God has opened your eyes to that. Blessed are you, he says. You've seen things that the prophets of old wanted to see. Angels wanted to peer into this. In other words, think about it. If you can actually believe with your heart that this battered, beaten, bloodied body hanging on a cross is actually the way to life eternal and reconciliation with God, you did not discover that. You didn't discern it. Even Paul says, what I receive, I passed on. The gospel is no human innovation. He opens our eyes to it as we sang in that song the first. He has to open our eyes. Nobody would intuitively find in Christ victory. He is the picture of glorious defeat. And yet in him rests the hope of the nations. So that's been given to you. And what that means, if you're a Christian here, is folks, we are not just filled with joy that we have been saved through his substitutionary death Our sins have been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. But we are absolutely humbled. We're humbled because we we can admit that we would have never discovered it. We would have never found it. We are the most most grateful people that understands what the true meaning of grace is. This is what grace is. You did nothing. He delivered to you the gospel. And he opened your eyes to its reality so that you believed. And even the faith you have to believe was given to you because he is so gracious. And so we are overwhelmed. Yes, it's come in an unexpected way, but it has come with great certainty and power. Look at my own life. Why am I here? I mean, I, I, as, as we were singing the song, I just was thinking, and I was praying, I was saying, why did you choose me? <clears throat> why out of my family did you choose me? That it makes sense to me. It makes sense. It accords with reason. I believe it. Many of you believe this. It's a gift. 
What a gift he's given to us. And you know it's a gift because to them it has not been given. It hasn't been given to them. Have mercy on them. But may we be mindful and grateful and humble. So the kingdom's going to come in a, in a very unexpected way, but that doesn't mean it's going to be uncertain. But notice what Jesus does in 18. He begins to explain the parable. <clears throat> and he's calling us, here's how you enter in. Here's how you bear a life of fruitfulness. Here's what you do. Look at what he says in 18. He goes back to this idea of listening. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. <clears throat> and he begins to explain it. Now remember, in, in some of these parables, he, thankfully in this one and in the one next week, he actually gives us the interpretation. So we're not left to wonder how do we make sense of seeds and sowers and hard soils and that sort of thing. He explains it to us. And what he says is, <clears throat> the sower is, of course, Jesus. We're going to see that clearly in verse 27 next week. But Jesus is the sower, and the seed is the gospel of the kingdom. You see that in verse 19. He says it's the word of the kingdom. The kingdom has come in Christ. In Christ, his death, his resurrection, is the, bringing the kingdom to us. And the soils are is the human heart. It's how we listen. It's how well you listen to the word of God, not just preached on Sunday, but as you read it in the scriptures, as you speak about it. It's going to be indicative of the status of your soul, of your heart. There's four types of soils. could be called the parable of the soils, for that matter. But it's, it's a, look at the soils. The first one is the hard soil. It's the impervious heart. Now, of course, in Palestine, uh, they didn't have road systems like we do, and so there was often paths to go from one spot to another. You'd walk through a field. Well, people would walk through the same field. They'd walk through the same area in the field, and obviously the constant traffic would, would smash down the dirt, and it would become hard as pavement. And so as the sowers sowing, some of the seed would fall on that pathway. Of course, the pathway was so hard that the seed couldn't penetrate the soil to germinate. And so the birds would come and take it away. And Jesus is referring here to the heart of the person that is hard to the things of the gospel. In other words, you can tell them that Jesus Christ has come, he's taken on flesh, he's left the glory of the Father, come down, taken on flesh, he's lived a perfect life, he's died a horrible death. We sang that in The Man of Sorrows. He died a horrible death, bearing the wrath of God and the sin of man. He was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come again in full judgment with glory and power. You can say that to them, and you know what? Great. You could tell them that tomorrow it might rain. It doesn't have an impact. They're somewhat indifferent to it. It's not that they have no interest, but they have really little interest in it. They're not antagonistic. I mean, they're not angry people. They're not fighting against the faith. They just are ambivalent to the truth and the power of the gospel. These are the people with a hard heart. It could be you. I mean, I know people that sit in pews for 20 years, hearing the gospel over and over, and it's like a summer rain hitting the pavement, you know, just pounding and bouncing right off the, right off the cement. They just don't understand. They don't have an interest. In fact, William Wilberforce, you know him, the, the great crusader against slavery in England, and um, a believer, strong believer, loved the preaching of Richard Cecil, an English-British pastor at the time, and 
took William Pitt, who was the prime minister of England, brilliant man, and um, took him to hear Richard Cecil because he was such a great preacher. And he thought, if he could just hear this man preach the gospel, it will make an impact in his life. So he took him to this one message. And, and Cecil was great in preaching the grace of God and the gospel. And so Wilberforce asked him, William Pitt, what did you think? What did you understand? Here's what he said. He said, you know, Wilberforce, I have the slightest idea what the man was talking about. I have the slightest idea what the man was talking about. I remember talking to a man in the first church I pastored. He's 58 at the time he came to faith. He had been at the church since he was eight. For 50 years, he heard the gospel. In the 58th year, it made sense. And he became a Christian. 50 years, he heard the gospel. That's the hard heart. Here's what J.C. Ross says about it. We may listen to a sermon with a heart like the hard way. Careless, thoughtless, unconcerned. Christ crucified may be affectionately set before us, and we may hear of his sufferings with utter indifference as a subject in which we have no interest. That's the hard heart. Perhaps that has been you. Or just you hear these things and you're just as concerned with who's playing football this afternoon. That's a hard heart. But look at else. The second heart is the superficial heart. It's the seed sown on rocky ground. Now, when they say rocky ground here, it's not like rocks strewn throughout the soil. In Palestine, there are many areas where there's only a thin layer of soil on this limestone bedrock. And so when the seed falls in it, the soil's really thin. It warms up easy with the spring rains. It quickly shoots up a sprout. And because it's not very deep, all the power goes into the plant, so it looks like it's growing really strong. But when the spring ends and the rains end, the soil's not very deep, and so it can't hold moisture. And so when the sun begins to bake it, the plant just quickly dies. It just dies right off. And he says, this is the person who hears the gospel, and with enthusiasm they embrace it, and they pursue it, and they're excited. It's about the person who comes and they speak about the excellence of the faith and they're all excited. I mean, they're gangbusters for the faith. But then trouble or persecution begins to come and all of a sudden they quickly wither and fade away. As soon as they shot up, so they shoot down. And trouble, it can be marital trouble. It can be you know, unanswered prayer about my children or my job or my financial situation or whatever the case is, or I'm still struggling with sin. Or maybe persecution. Maybe your family's rejected you because... You've chosen to follow Christ. And so these things come on, and quickly, without the root, the gospel hasn't been anchored in the soul, and so, boom, what happens is it just withers and dies. It's not as if they've lost the faith. The question is, did they ever have the faith? That's the shallows. You know them. Maybe, maybe again, it's been you. You came to faith, you had some experience 20 years ago, and nothing's happened. This is the soil he's speaking about. Third soil is I would call the conflicted soil or divided soil. It's that soil that's sown among the seed that's sown among the thorns. Now, my understanding is it's not so much developed thorns, but the seeds that go on the ground of the gospel are good seeds and the ground looks good. But in the ground are other seeds. And so they all both grow up together. But the other seeds are the thornbush seeds. 
and they're more aggressive in taking the nutrients out of the ground. And so as they all grow up together, they intertwine and they slowly choke the life out of the good seed. And Jesus, of course, explains that these thorns are really representative of the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of the world. They begin to crowd out any sacrificial faith. In other words, again, it's not opposition. They may affirm cognitively the truth of the gospel. But what happens is the worries over money and the concerns over pleasure and the, and the relentless pursuit of happiness and all the effort that it takes to do that just crowds out any willingness to sacrifice for Christ. A good act of faith begins to be strangled out. So when you look at these soils, do you see yourself in them? I don't want to imply to you that I see you. That I'm asking you to grow in self-awareness. Do you see yourself as a hard soil? I mean, when the things of God come up, are you unconcerned? I mean, do you just run from spiritual conversation? Do you run to it? Do you have developing affections for Christ? When you hear about the sacrifice of Christ, are you drawn back to the nature of your sin and your thankfulness over his sacrifice? What, what happens when you hear the gospel to you? What happens to you? Is it just mute? Is there anything that occurs in your soul? Could indicate a hardness of heart. Or perhaps <clears throat> there are those of you, you know, there's that superficial, yeah, I believed, it happened 20 years ago, but, but I've settled into more of a consistent walk with Jesus, which is really no walk at all. <clears throat> there's this idea that, you know, yeah, I believed, but, you know, I had all these troubles. I prayed, he didn't answer this. My child was sick, he didn't heal it didn't get me the new job, and you go through a litany of what he hasn't done for you, and distance and disillusionment has come into your life over God. Perhaps that's the case. Or maybe you're like the rest of the, of the North American church in this third set, this, in this third soil, you know, the nature of all the worries, all the concerns. You really love these things, but you love Jesus. And they keep growing apart eventually, and you don't want to let go of either. You have multiple loves. Perhaps that's where you're struggling. I think that's where most of us struggle here in this country. The affluence has led us. And you see it in our country. You, you see this, this driving need to be happy and to prevent pain. So let me, <clears throat> just a little bit ago, very tragic situation happened. I think it was in Seattle. A child fell off a swing. And, and freak accident died, uh, hurting its neck and, and dying. And that is no doubt a tragedy that none of us would want to walk through. And so there is a petition moving now to remove swing sets from playgrounds. Now, now folks, that's very indicative of our culture. I mean, that, that's a clear window. If you want to understand where we are as a people, that's a great example. Why? Because we're trying to eliminate life. We think that we're going to try to take away all the sacrifice and pain and struggle we have. That is not what this world's going to be until it comes. You know, what soil is represented by your heart? I mean, are, are you so concerned? Are you so in fear? Are you so gripped by worry that it's strangling out true faith and love for God? You know, but these soils would indicate evidence that the faith you have is not genuine. That's why he says, if you have ears, are you hearing? 
it's not the seed. The seed's the same. It's not the sower. The sower's the same. It's the soil. It's the character. It's the soul. Folks, if, if you see yourself maybe in one of these, or perhaps you bounce from one to the other, here's what I want to encourage you. Let's repent. Let's have the courage that the gospel affords to repent of our sins and say, God, give me, dig deep through the bedrock and plant the seed. Bust up my hard ground, Father. Ask him. You know, it's amazing. In James, he says, you have not because you ask not. And then Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and seek and knock. Keep asking. If you are caught up with multiple loves, say, God, weed my garden. But get ready. Get ready for that. But you will be happy. You will be happy, even though you may be initially intimidated by asking. Weed the garden. Take out the thorns. Let me, give me, pray with David in Psalm 86. Give me an undivided heart. Or, or if you're a superficial, you know, and it's, it, ask him for a deeper, greater love and understanding. Let's appeal to God for these things. But notice there's a fourth soil. And the fourth soil is a good soil. It's going to yield 100, 60, and 30-fold. This soil, by the way, this isn't perfect soil. This isn't the perfect Christian. It's just a fruitful soil. And you notice that there's variations in it, don't you? There are going to be people who produce more than you produce, more than I produce. That's okay. The fruit that we're speaking about is repentance unto God. That this is the fruit, when you hear the word on Sunday, when you read the word during the week, when you converse over the word with friends, then what the fruit's going to be produced is, God, I have to repent of that sin, or or greater love uh, towards Christ, or greater charity towards others, or a greater love for the saints that I may consider a bit odd for me, or a greater love for the lost. This is the fruit. Do you see this fruit in your life? Do you see this fruit come up? Ask somebody. If you don't see it, ask your spouse, ask your child, ask a friend. Have the courage to say, what fruit do you see in me? And if there's no fruit, go to God. Go to him quick. You know, Donald Whitney has written a book, or I think it's probably an article on um, diagnosing your spiritual health, and there's 10 questions that he has. I I think we'll post it on the web or a link to it on the web for you this week. But, But it's It's these 10 questions that you can ask yourself to indicate whether you're growing or not, whether the fruit of the word is bearing forth in your life. And a question such as, do I have an increasing love for God? Do I have an increasing distaste for sin? am Am I falling in deeper desire for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness? Am I longing to see the face of the one who died for me? Those are questions that we need to ask ourselves. I mean, because if we keep saying, nah, not really, nah, not really, then, then we need to take some, you know, we need to take inventory and say, God, what's happening? Or if we say, yes, these are growing, then we rejoice with God, how his spirit is producing fruit. Now, how do you cultivate a heart like this? Well, my first thought is, you begin to pray for yourself and you pray for me or whoever's preaching. God, have mercy on us. Let the word be clear. Let my heart be right. I would also say, practically, you want to come physically aware. If you're out till 3 in the morning on Saturday, it's hard to keep you awake. It is, no doubt. I mean, the sound bites now are less than 23 seconds. I've gone on for probably 38 minutes now. You don't hear this anymore. It is true. 
The monologues are becoming a dinosaur. And so for your mind to stay active, the papers are written at a fourth to fifth grade reading level. I'm trying to keep it six to seven here. That's all I got. Sorry. (laughs) But the reality of it is to sustain thought over a long period of time is difficult. You have to be alert and aware and ready. And also you have to be volitionary. volitionary. I'm going to say it. You need to be volitionally prepared. What I mean by that is ready to do what it says. You need to be, if we talk about the need to extend forgiveness, you've got to go through your life and say, who am I holding, withholding forgiveness from? If, if the scriptures are calling me to exercise sacrifice towards the needs of another, who in my life, in my circles, can I exercise sacrifice for? If it calls me to confess my sins of lust or envy or anger, then I'm going to do it. In other words, you're going to do what the Word says. If you don't do it, James says you're a deceived man. You go away from the mirror forgetting what you look like. And so we want to be ready and prepared to do this. If the Word gives forth life, then I want you to go home and consider, am I reading the Word? How am I coming to church? How am I engaging in spiritual conversation? This will cement it in and get you ready. So the kingdom is going to come in an unexpected way. I hope you're bettered by that. I hope you've been warned in a good sense. Yes, in this world there is trouble. We can take courage. He's overcome the world. Secondly, secondly, even though it comes unexpectedly, it's going to certainly happen as we see the gospel both hardening and softening. We see the gospel going forth in certainty. And then, and then thirdly, how are you responding to it? How are you hearing? Every one of you has ears. How are you using them? How are you hearing? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to do something a little different this Sunday. Uh, We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. And then Ray's going to come up and just kind of give a couple thoughts for you to think about. And then we're going to pray in silence as as a church. And then he'll he'll lead us in that and close us in that. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for this word. Father, we have ears. Give us the grace to hear with these ears. Hear what the Spirit is telling us through your precious word. Father, we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.